happens in the context of relationship. Discipleship only happens or only occurs in the context of relationship. I just referred to Jesus talking to his disciples in that moment. Will you also go away and leave me? Um, and fortunately, they said no. You're the only ones. Who, to whom else would we go, they asked. You're the only one that has the words of life. We understand that you are, if, if you recall the other passage, when Jesus was up north in uh, Galilee, and he was getting ready to turn, the Bible says, his face resolutely to return, this is in Luke chapter 9, to return to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. No one knew that but him. But as he was up north with his guys in, this, in relationship with his 12, we generally think of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And as he was with them in relationship, he asked the simple question, who do men say that I am? And they began to respond. Well, some say you're Elijah raised from the dead. Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or you're one of the other prophets of old that has come back to life. Or that you're a great teacher and uh, you're a nice guy and you're the son of the carpenter. They give all the definitions of who men said that he was. And we ourselves maybe have to come to the point where we answer the question, don't we? Who do we say that he is? I know that was the confrontation for me before I knew who he was. I was searching for him. I was looking for the answers to life. I wanted to get out of what I was doing and get into something that was more life-giving. And I, as I was searching for that, Jesus interrupted my life and said, I'm who you're looking for. And gave me the opportunity to accept him as my Savior and he transformed my life. And now I can... You know, before that, I say, well, who's Jesus? I might have answered, well, he's a nice guy, he's a teacher, he's a prophet, he's a something. I know I probably grew up studying about him some certain things, and, and so I had some general knowledge of who Jesus was, but I did not realize he was the Son of God and that he was alive. I didn't know that. And these guys told me, he's alive today. I said, really? And he forgives your sins. Really? That's what I need. I need my sins forgiven. I need to be in relationship with the Son of God. And so I accepted Christ into my life and became a disciple. Now I'm on the other side of the equation with Jesus quizzing his disciples, saying, well, who do men say that I am? When they got done with all the answers, he said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. To which Jesus responded by saying, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. That came from heaven. That's heavenly wisdom. Easy to be entreated. Comes down from above. It's not fleshly. It's not carnal. It's not of the world. You've got an insight that came from spiritual insight from God. You've got a revelation that I am the Son of God and I am the Messiah. What he was doing before he turned south to go to his crucifixion was making sure that his disciples knew who he was and were willing to go with him as he went to die and that they would not walk away. Have you ever had the opportunity as a disciple to leave following Jesus? Now, we're not real quick to go, oh, sure, but we have, haven't we? There have been days when you wondered, am I going the right direction? Is Jesus really worth following? And then the Holy Spirit brought you back to your senses and said, are you kidding? 
Those thoughts are not coming from me. Those thoughts are coming from the enemy. Those thoughts are coming out of your discouragement. Those things are coming at you because you're a little bit down right now. But I did not get off the throne. Peggy reminded me this morning that God is still on the throne and that I'm not in charge. <laughs> so that's a good wife. Amen? Discipleship happens in the context of relationship. Jesus had relationship with his followers. And when he called their relationship to tightness, they responded well. And they adhered to him. And they stayed with him. And most of them made it all the way to the cross, didn't they? Some ran away in the nighttime as the prayer was happening in Gethsemane. And they came to rest Jesus. And they kind of ran. But they hung in there. And do you know that every one of those early apostles were martyred for Christ. Within the first century, every one of them had given their life to demonstrate their witness for Jesus. They were willing to say to the world that I will never, ever turn my back on Jesus. I will never walk away or deny him. These are disciples. These are strong disciples that realize that even life itself is not as important as staying in relationship with Jesus. They were convinced that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We talk about Timothy and Paul for a couple of minutes. <clears throat> Paul writes the letter to the Philippians from jail. And Timothy is with him. And as he's writing, he includes in it in chapter 2, Philippians verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state or your condition. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Hello. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Wouldn't you like to have Paul the Apostle say that about you? <coughs> I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state and your condition. Everyone else is seeking their own, but not Timothy. He's concerned about you. And you know his proven character we turn back to the book of Acts, we would find chapter 16. And actually, while you're turning to Acts chapter 16, I'll remind you that in Acts 14, Paul's on his first missionary journey, and he ends up going to the town where Timothy lives. And actually, there's kind of a revival breaks out, and some trouble breaks out, and he has to, he, Paul gets run out of town. But they have many souls that are converted to Christ in these towns of Iconium and Lystra, Derby, and that area. And in chapter 16, it says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Mixed marriage. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. He was uncircumcised. 
And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem, and that's in chapter 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul the Apostle went through a, uh, that period of, of bringing the gospel to that area of the world, and it's believed that Timothy probably was converted in that first journey, in that first missionary trip of Paul. When Paul comes back around by now, Timothy is a well-spoken-of disciple in two towns, nearby towns. It would be like knowing you in Fonskin and knowing you in Irvine Lake, okay? A little farther apart. But everybody in both ends had a good thing to say about Timothy. He was a great disciple. What's a disciple? A disciple, the, it comes from the Greek word mathetes, and it means uh, a calculated thing. Mathetes, you hear the word math in there? Mathetes, it's a person who follows a calculated path of following after another person's teaching and lifestyle. When we're called to be mathetes, or disciples of Jesus, it means that we have our eyes on him, we're listening to his teachings, we're watching his actions, we want to emulate who he is and follow him as nearly as we can to his own person. We want to be just like him. We all look a little different, but we can all be just like him. Timothy was a learner. And isn't that one of the requisites of being a good disciple? Is you're willing to learn, you're willing to change, willing to take on new information and apply it to your life so that it brings transformation to you. And in that transformation, you become more and more in the image of Jesus. So Paul had Timothy as a convert and then attracted him as a traveling companion. And if you continue through the book of Acts, you'll find out that where Paul got in trouble and had to run on ahead and people were trying to get him out of town before he'd get killed, in Berea, he left Timothy and another disciple there to take care of setting the church in order. But he himself was under threat of death, so he left town. But he leaves Timothy and this other disciple in charge of fashioning the church into its being and into its existent state and giving elders and leaders over the church body in those cities. And so t Paul, in his relationship with Timothy, had a great trust that he could leave Timothy in charge of a whole city and that things would come out well. Paul himself traveled on to Athens and then on to Corinth. And by the time he got to Corinth, uh, he had sent word back to where they were in Berea and said, Hey, Timothy, you guys need to catch up with me. And they caught up with him in Cor Corinth and uh, started ministering again and traveling together again. Timothy's mentioned a few times through the rest of the book of Acts as traveling with Paul, even as Paul is imprisoned. And as we read from Philippians, we understand that he is in jail. And he's writing a letter that says everybody ought to be joyful. I'm in jail. I'm telling you, rejoice. Things are going well. Life is good. I'm right in the flow with God. And I'm going to send my trusted son. You know, Timothy is mentioned in Paul's letters. He wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. And he's mentioned in over half of them. Timothy and Paul had relationship to this point that eventually Paul preaches in Ephesus, riots break out, the church is established, and we understand that later on, in, the, in about 10 years later, the church in Ephesus has grown from a small group of people to over 30,000 converts to Christ in about 10 years. The church grows so rapidly that Paul asks Timothy and leaves him behind to pastor the church in Ephesus. So Timothy becomes a pastor of this huge, widespread movement in Ephesus. 30,000 people. 
all new converts in Jesus within a few years. Now there's a task, don't you think? Discipling a whole city of 30,000 people. And that's where we get the letters to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. As Paul is writing to Timothy as a young pastor, because only about 10 or 15 years, maybe some would say 17 to 20 years has gone by since Paul picked up Timothy and they started traveling together and discipling in relationship. Paul, you know, pressing into Timothy leadership talent, leadership qualities, understanding of the church, understanding of doctrine and belief systems and what Jesus had done in his own life, sharing that with Timothy, sharing together relationship with Christ in prayer and fasting and even in temptation and in danger and threat. and all, They just shared life together like Jesus shared life with his guys. And you, you understand, you know, factor in here that Paul wasn't one of the guys with Jesus. Paul says about himself, I'm a, I'm a disciple, I'm an apostle born out of due season. I came along late. I, I was only introduced to Christ after he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He confronted me when I was on the road to Damascus to go you know, put Christians in jail. And he revealed himself to me and I became a follower of Christ. So he had a great uh, relationship with Christ that came like yours came after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in that relationship, he could share with Timothy in his salvation, and they grew together. Discipleship is a process that facilitates being and reproducing spiritually mature zealots for Christ. That's a definition from George Barna. Discipleship is a process that facilitates being and reproducing spiritually mature zealots for Christ. Now, I don't particularly go for the word zealots. It's not something we use a lot in our society today, but it kind of carries a connotation of, of a bad guy, doesn't it? You know, that guy's a zealot. Well, what it really means is that they just have a lot of zeal for the cause. In the, in the early church, there were zealots, and they, they were actually, they carried swords and killed people because they were zealous for their cause. So sometimes there's that, uh, that same understanding giving to, given to us when we think about zealots. But it just means that they're absolutely given over to what they're following. Discipleship is a process. It takes a while, doesn't it? You have to get to know a person. You have to spend time with them. Discipleship doesn't happen out of a textbook. You can't be a disciple unless you want to disciple, be a disciple of a book. Go out and act like a book. <clears throat> Let me give you some points about what Christian disciples do. Christian disciples embrace salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. Primarily, that's the first thing we do. We understand that we have to be saved by grace through faith and that we can't do it ourselves. Secondly, we learn and understand the principles of Christian living. When we talk about Christian living, it's not just a lifestyle. It's a life after Christ. Christian. Christ-like. Not just a religious phase or an adoption of certain rules, principles, and laws, but being like Christ. We look for ways of understanding Jesus, learn of him, and then Follow those principles and live like Christ. How are you doing on a 1 to 10, living like Christ? Go ahead, just grade yourself. I'm about a, 
Hmm. Six, eight. Guys, let me tell you something. In a quick test like that, you can always know. And ladies, you can understand this as well. On a one to ten, usually guys overrate themselves by two. <laughs> guys, sorry. <laughs> if you just gave yourself a six, you're a four. <laughs> Reality check. Christian disciples obey God's laws and commands. We don't obey them out of legalism. We obey them out of love. Appreciated the other day we were together and somebody said, obedience is just an illustration of love. That's all it is. When someone obeys another person, it's because they admire them and love them and appreciate them. I said, man, that's a good definition. I like that. So when we obey the laws and commands of God, it's simply because we love him. We don't do works to get saved. We do things because we are saved and our sins are forgiven. Another thing disciples do is we represent God in the world. Now there's a task. I want to share with you that this thought from my heart. And you may think this is kind of corny and that's all right. I'll still do it and I'll be corny if that's the case. But a week doesn't go by at my house when I'm not getting ready in front of the mirror in my bathroom. And I say to myself, it's just an auto thing. It happens a lot. I'm going to go outside my house in a few minutes. I may not have the extended conversation, but this is the big one. I'm going to leave my house in a few minutes. And when I go out there, I want to make sure that I don't do anything or look like anything that would embarrass the body of Christ. That's a reality check for me. I, I, I don't leave my home to represent myself by myself. I can't go out and foul up and not affect a lot of other people, right? Neither can you. We have to go out and be God to the world. And I, I use that as a check to my spirit that tells me, now you're going out there, and we've raised our kids this way. And listen, when you go out there, you remember this. Your last name is Tunnel. The other kids have different last names. They may have different rules and regimens that they follow in their house. But when you're outside this house, your last name is Tunnel. And you represent all of us while you're out there. So don't do anything that would foul the rest of us up. We okay here? All right. So, am I being too serious? You guys are really looking serious about this. Ah, okay, it's a serious moment. Okay. What, what uh, another thing Christian disciples do? Come on, they serve others. The Bible says about our Master and Savior Jesus that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's our model. He's, we're discipling after him. We become servants, servants to others. I've shared before, but there was a kind of a glib moment in my own testimony. A period, and Peggy could tell you better than I, because I forget the details. But she wouldn't. She could probably tell you what I was wearing when I said it. I said, "I just, Peggy, I just want to be great. I just want to be great." Sort of an egocentric moment. I want. I just. How do you be great? I want to be great at what I do. And she said, "Well, that's easy. It wasn't easy for me. I was looking for the answer. Is it? Tell me what is. She said, just serve everybody." 
And it hit me like a brick. I thought, this is truth. She gave me truth in that quick. If you want to be great, serve everybody. That's what Jesus said. Get down and lift people up. Find a way to wash their feet, make them better. Improve their life. And God will improve yours. You want to be great? Be the least of all. Boy, what, what a change on the way the world wants us to live. Mm -hmm. Another thing disciples do is they reproduce themselves in Christ. We try to reproduce the Christ-likeness in us into others. We want to disciple others. In the process, where we start generally with our own families. We need to reproduce Christ-likeness from us into our families so that they come out Christ-like and that they are also disciples of Jesus independent of us. I was with Danny Hanafy this week, which maybe to name it, Peggy and I went and interviewed with Danny Hanafy, who was the leader of International Full Gospel Fellowship and reaches into Indonesia. Janina, it looks like, is going to go to Indonesia this summer and lead worship all over the southeastern islands of Indonesia with their, their ministry team. And as we were sitting there, he was telling us about how his daughter went with him on her, on her first trip when she was 14 or 15, 15, something like that. And she, she had grown up in a Christian home, and she knew mom and dad as God. And he was the God of mom and dad, like God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But she said, Dad, I want to go on the trip. And she could speak a little Indonesian, being raised here in America, but being an Indonesian family. So they were out in some remote island. There's no health care anywhere nearby. And they're in this little hut with a lady whose hands look like sausages. Her fingers are all swollen up. She had some kind of, a, of an interaction or a problem or something that nobody really understood. And this little 14, 15-year-old girl said, well, I'm going to pray for you. That's why we came. It's just to pray that Jesus will heal you. And she held that woman's hands and she prayed in her broken Indonesian for Jesus to come and touch this woman. And as she was holding her hands, they reduced down to normal. Right like in that 22-second change-your-life moment, just went as she was holding them. And they both looked at each other like, wow. And she came home from that trip saying, now I know God. I don't know the God of my parents. He's my God. He's revealed himself to me. It's personal now. And she's gone back every year for five years. She's going again this year. We reproduce Christ-likeness into our families. Then we reproduce Christ into others. The fortunate part that we have when we disciple somebody else is we try not to reproduce us into them. Right? Because we know where we fail. We know where our stuff, our problem. Don't give them that. And so we have an advantage of being able to hold back on not giving them all of our character traits. We want to give them Jesus. So we reproduce ourselves in Christ, in others. Another earmark of disciples is that they worship God with sincerity, intensity, and consistency. In Acts chapter 2, there are six pillars of the early church. And I'm just going to read them out to you. Well, let's, we'll turn there. It's easier to read it than me talk a whole bunch of extra words. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the early church. This is where it just got started. And here we find these six pillars in the early church. One was evangelism. They were always reaching out. Two, it was discipleship. They were immediately discipling those who were coming to Christ. Three, they were worshipers. They broke bread from house to house. They worshiped daily in the temple courts. And from house to house, the Bible records for us, they had stewardship. Stewardship, in this case, they were selling things that they had and giving it to those that had need. I always like to point this out that if you know your history a little bit, it wasn't too many years before the whole city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground, right? So what they would have had, had they held on to their possessions, would have been worthless. You ever think of that? History tells us that they were moved by the Spirit to sell things that were going to be worthless anyway. Boy, didn't, wouldn't we have loved to get that news about a year and a half ago. Community service was a part of the early church, serving others, reaching out, helping the poor, helping those that had nothing. Service, community service. And then the earmark of the church was having relationship one with another. And we know that there's over 35 references in the New Testament writers that include the phrase one another. We like to call them the one another passages. Love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another forbear with one another mm -hmm. what does it conclude it's too easy you should go have to look them all up and remember them all and then you would always remember that the Bible says you have to do it with somebody else it's a one another practice you can't be a Christian by yourself you can be saved your sins can be forgiven and you can be a Christian meaning that you're born again going to heaven but Christ likeness Discipling after Christ means you're not going to be alone very, alone very long. You're going to be with others. You're going to be communing in the body of Christ. We have cell groups. We have lighthouses, we call them. Small groups that meet in homes and businesses all around the community. And we want to see those continue to grow. And that's where people build relationship one with another. That's where you can let your hair down. Here you don't get to ask a question hardly at all. But in there, you can ask all you want. You can have people pray for you. You can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Let God move through you, and you can develop each other into Christ's likeness. Because it's a one another faith. I mentioned George Barna a moment ago. In one of his studies, he gave these obstacles to discipleship. They, you know, they do these whole nationwide studies and say, what are the things that are obstacles to successful discipleship in the body of Christ? Let me just read them to you. One, there's no clear, measurable definition of success. Nobody knows what the outcome's supposed to be. We ought to be able to define it. What is a disciple? What do they look like when they're done? There's a focus on knowledge more than character. Study this book, read that text, do these things, and once you get an A on the test, then you're a disciple. What we really need is the character of Jesus flowing out through a person's life. What's more comforting when you're in the hospital bed and you open your eyes and you have the need? You look up, do you want a textbook? Or do you want somebody with eyes that look like Jesus carrying over your bed? 
and willing to pray a prayer of faith? Mm -hmm. That's an easy answer, isn't it? Teaching is random and not systematic. There's no framework for discipleship. We don't know where we're going. There's limited accountability for spiritual growth. Nobody ever asks me how I'm doing. Nobody ever checks up on me. Hey, if you're failing and you're falling off the path of life, wouldn't you want somebody to come chase you down? We really don't want them in the moment, do we? We want them to leave us alone and let, let us go our way and let us be rebellious and walk off. And, but what we really need in our heart of hearts is somebody to come along, grab us by the lapels and say, look, you are failing here. We have a measurement tool and you're not reaching it. <laughs> uh, you're not loving people. You're falling off. You're practicing things that are against Christ's likeness and I'm here to help you. You know, it comes in the, the, the name, some of you have heard this, but the story about Brother White. <laughs> Brother White. This comes from my pastor. He had a friend named Brother White. Brother White had a friend who would never accept Jesus. Every time they were together, Brother White would just always tell them about Jesus. And the other guy would just refuse and push and say, no, I don't want to hear about that. Well, Brother White and his friend were together one day, and they were sitting at the table, and Brother White went at it and started telling him he needed to get saved, go to heaven, he needed to get his sins forgiven. And the guy said, I don't want to hear about it. And it broke out into a fight. And pretty soon, Brother White and this guy are going at it. I mean, they're literally beating each other to a pulp. And in the end, Brother White gets so mad that this guy won't accept Jesus, and he's willing to fight about it. He grabs this chair, and he breaks it over this guy's back and just trashes him to the floor. The guy's laying there still. And Brother White's going, I killed him. I can't believe I'm trying to win him to Jesus. And I've just killed him. He goes over and checks him, rolls him over, and the guy's coming to him, and he, go, and he looks at him and goes, okay, White, okay, I'll accept Jesus. <laughs> Literally, and the guy got saved. Now, this isn't our, we don't disciple this practice. <laughs> I don't recommend this as a tool of evangelism. That's called confronting evangelism. But <laughs> Tough love, yeah, right. <laughs> Limited accountability for spiritual growth. White wasn't going to let his friend go to hell. I thought that was pretty cool. There's an emphasis on programs and efficiency instead of people and transformation. These are hindrances to discipleship in the body of Christ. Too much emphasis on small groups as a mean to, means to total spiritual growth. I could be, you could accuse me of that. But I know that in those small groups is where it happens. In those cells is where it's going to happen. In relationship is what I'm saying. If it's in, not in that cell group, it's not in that lighthouse, get it somewhere where you're with other people who will hold you accountable and cause you to grow. Church leaders are not zealous disciple makers. Largely ignore discipleship among children. And the church's best leaders are diverted to ministries other than discipleship. Somebody finally gets good at it, we take it and make them ahead of something, and then they quit being good at discipling. That, that's a bad idea. And these are just observations from the national uh, polls that they did. Here's some words that are connected with discipleship. When effective discipleship is happening in a group of people, people are actually following Jesus and doing pretty well, here's words that pop up regularly. Passion. Depth. Practice. Interactive, lifelong, 
These are words that people use regularly in an atmosphere of following Jesus successfully. Well, I'm going to switch gears. I have a whole, whole lot more. In fact, I came with 18 messages ready this morning. And uh, I'm going to stick with one. Is that all right? I was really hankered on two of them. But we're not quite done. I need somebody to, to invite your wife, Anthony. Uh, somebody was going to go and get her and have her come up and be with us for the next few minutes. She's aware of that. She's have her march that little kid's on over. I have some pictures I want to show everybody. My PowerPoint for the day. And, of course, the guy that runs the PowerPoint just went out for a cup of coffee. And he'll be back soon, I'm sure. While they're getting that ready, let me read this to you. Discipleship is the ministry of developing deeply spiritual friendships focused on teaching biblical truth applying scripture to life and thus learning to solve problems biblically. It must be reinforced by a godly example, not just delivered as a set of academic precepts. Therefore, discipleship involves time and personal involvement with people. Jesus' earthly ministry to his own disciples is the biblical model. The church must provide an environment that encourages that kind of discipleship at every level. It is most significant that whenever spiritual awakenings have occurred throughout the Christian centuries, they have always been accompanied by a restoration of koinonia, which is godly love one for another, the confession of faults, and the bearing of one another's burdens. Let me read that one more time. It's most significant that whenever spiritual awakenings have occurred throughout the this Christian centuries, they have always been accompanied by a restoration of koinonia, of the confession of faults, and the bearing of one another's burdens. During the Wesleyan awakening in the 18th century England, the great evangelist George Whitfield wrote to his converts, quote, My brethren, let us plainly and freely tell one another what God has done for our souls. To this end, you would do well, as others have done, to form yourselves into little companies of four or five each and meet once a week to tell each other what's in your hearts. Then, that you may then also pray for and comfort each other as need shall require. None but those who have experienced it can tell the unspeakable advantages of such a union and communion of souls. None, I think, that truly loves his own soul and his brethren as himself will be shy of opening his heart in order to have their advice and to have their reproof, their admonition and prayers as occasions require. A sincere person will esteem it one of the greatest blessings. End quote. Interesting side note to that is that George Whitfield was a contemporary to Wesley, John Wesley. John Wesley organized the whole movement into small groups. He called them classes. They were cell groups. He had 100,000 cell groups in England back in the 18th century. We think we're doing something new. You know what? When you're a Methodist, that's the method. And it, that's how they got their name. It was the method of discipleship. You had to be in what was called a class every week. 
if you went to the class and check this out, 10 people in a circle, maybe out on a street corner, they met and the first question by the leader was this, in what way were you tempted and sinned this week? And they would go right around the circle and everybody would confess their sins. I did this and that and then, okay, how are we going to pray for one another? Then they'd pray for one another. They'd ask forgiveness together and they'd pray for one another. And you had to be in the class. And then if you're in the class, you got a little ticket. And with the ticket, you could go to the weekend service. But you didn't have a ticket, you didn't get in to the celebration. You think we're tough? <laughs> Come on. Wesley grew that thing into over 100,000, 150,000 people in cell groups in England in the 18th century. They didn't have text and, you know, all the IM and they didn't have, they just got together around the corner every week and said, how'd you sin? Let's pray for you. Boy, that'll get your discipleship up in a hurry, wouldn't it? If every week you knew you had to go and look somebody in the eye and say, this is how I sin this week, pray for me. You'd stop sinning. <laughs> okay. So discipleship's a process. I, I touched a little bit on Timothy and Paul and that Timothy eventually becomes the pastor of 30,000 people because of his relationship with Paul and their work together in the mission field and all around those countries. And when you read the New Testament, you're reading a lot about that process. Now, introducing Timothy. You've been waiting for this for a long time. Seems like forever. A couple of months. But you can go right to the next slide because God has provided me my Timothy. And there he is. Oh. <laughs> I turn that this has been a supernatural journey we've been on in transitioning the church and some of you are visiting with us for the first time you don't even know what I'm talking about but we are transitioning the leadership of our church over the next few years and Rob is going to come on staff with us in September and so now of course Rob brings a lot of people with him and we're going to give you a couple more slides so you can get familiar with these guys as a family. So let's just work our way through it. You may want to jot these down. I thought this was important uh, that you kind of get a feel for their age bracketing. And we could have made that a little bigger probably. But Rob will be 39 this year. Shannon is in her verses. And <laughs> Matthew's got a dozen years on him. And Zach's going to be nine this month. In fact, Shannon's birthday's. Uh, I advanced her age to that because her birthday is next week on Wednesday. And I, you see Madeline's five and little Samuel's almost two. So that's the package God is sending to us. Let's go ahead. Now here's, the, here's how it works. Now this woman stayed home ill this morning and she was going to get this sitting right here. <laughs> but that's okay. I got a hold of Rob and he called her at home. Uh, but this is Bev's son, if you don't know it, okay? Family ties. Oh, and for those of you that could relate to this, a couple right over there. That's, that's Gary's brother. And uh, what else we got? Some of you might not be aware that that's Trisha's brother, too. Uh-huh. So, it's, uh, they're deeply ingrained around here. Pat Hastings is another brother. He's in North Carolina, right, still? And, uh, yeah. and then Jay's in Arizona. And then Sean Leonard is Shannon's brother, and he lives right here in Irma Lake. Right now, Rob and Shannon are in Oakdale. 
which is up near Modesto. Let's continue. Extended family. Well, my goodness, there's a nephew and his wife sitting right over there against that window. <laughs> Josh and Sarah. And those two cuties. I was so thrilled this morning that that little guy there came around the corner and ran right up to me this morning. Just as soon as he saw me, he said, Papa, Papa. I thought, melt me in my shoes, boy. Anyway, am I in your way? I'm sorry. So what else? This is a little bit of his resume, a little history on him. Rob moved to Big Bear in 77. I could read this to you. Got saved in 79, gave his life to Christ at 85, really committed. Got water baptized in 1987, and then got filled with the Holy Ghost a year later, 1988, or in the next year. You can see his, his life has progressed in a pretty good fashion. Next page uh, shows some other items here. That uh, He served with us in 1991 and 94 right here in our congregation as a youth pastor. Um, I didn't have the second line up there when I made this slide. And I kept looking at it going, there's this gap between 94 and 97. And there's no, what happened? Where, Rob disappeared? And then I realized, oh, that's when he met Shannon. <laughs> and so he got kind of taken out for a few years there as he was... I wanted to put up there chasing, but <laughs> courting seemed to fit better. But uh, you know, he courted and married Shannon during those that period, 94, 96. He was a cell leader here, he was a worship leader for a long time with us. And then in 2002, we sent Rob and his family to Guatemala. And how many of the kids were born down there? Two of them? Yeah, I mean, we got dual citizenship in this family in Guatemala, Antigua. In fact, I was just thinking about this that. You may see me carry my Bible cover, this ratty old cover here. This is made in Antigua, and it still survives. And I keep it because of those days we spent down there with them. Uh, when, he came, when they came back in September of 05 from uh, Guatemala, they went to become the assistant pastors at Oak Valley Church in Oakdale with Eric and Danielle Jensen, part of the uh, Fellowship of Christian Assemblies. So that's what they've been doing, and they're doing this there right now in their church, doing the exact same thing we're doing here as they're making this announcement this morning. Last month, Peggy and I got in the car and drove up to Oakdale. This is where Jonathan, our son, is doing an internship in the same church with Rob and with Pastor Eric. So we drove up to see Jonathan, and while we were there, right as, as we arrived, we looked at each other and pretty much concluded, you know what, we think this is it. So... Let's see if pastor's around. Let's see if he shows up. Right then, he drives into the parking lot. I go, this is just all very supernatural for us. It's all coming together. I mean, that's, a, that's about a seven-hour drive, 400 miles from here. And so Pastor Eric pulls in the parking lot and says, hey, what are you doing here? I said, well, we just went for a drive. <laughs> and we ended up here. <laughs> and we are taking a couple of days off. And we said, well, go see Jonathan. He says, hey, that's great. How long are you going to be around? And I said, I'm going to be around long enough to go to breakfast with you in the morning. He says, well, they have their staff meeting the next day, and so that includes Rob and Jonathan. And I said, well, let's just all go to have breakfast. And during the breakfast, I, which I elongated eternally, it seemed like, because I kept wondering, is it, should I, is this, may I, can I, God, what about? And so we shuttled Jonathan off to go to work, and Rob's sitting there with Pastor Eric, and and he says, how are you doing in your transition? Been kind of following the transition down there. Pastor Mike's now the 
new pastor at the Foursquare Church. Um, what's next? I said, well, that's phase one, was making sure Pastor Mike and Trish had a new uh, fruitful field to work in. And, and now I need to get Timothy. And I said, I think you've got him. And he looked back at me and said, I think I do too. He said, the Lord's been speaking to my heart uh, for a couple of months now, and I just knew that he wasn't going to be staying here much longer. And uh, in fact, he had asked Rob a couple times in the, in the month ahead, have you heard anything from down there? Do you know anything that's going on? And he kept quizzing Rob, and Rob was like, what are you talking to me about? And, uh, but it all just kind of came together as we sat at breakfast. And so we stayed longer, and we figured out a little plan, and I said, Eric, you decide when it's good to announce it at your church, and, and that we're already in transition here, so whenever it comes for us, we're ready for it. And he, uh, we got back together a week later, and he said, I, I'll need to announce on June the 7th and get the ball rolling on our end. And so today, they're announcing it. That forced my hand, which I'm glad for. Okay? We got some more uh, after that? Yeah. Kind of reddish there. Having a problem with these colors these days. And then, I think there's one other one there. Yeah. Sam's the short one. So in the left picture, it goes uphill from there. Sam, Madeline, Zachary, and Matthew. And of course, the one on the right is a little different orientation there. That's the team. And uh, they, spoke with their, they spoke with their family yesterday, the kids. And there were lots of tears and sadness, but they weren't mad. That's good. <laughs> so they're, they're coming home. Basically, somebody asked me early on, is it going to be somebody we know? Is it, what do you think? I said, I believe God's going to give us somebody within our family that will affix themselves to us and begin to grow with us. And uh, thank you for all of you that voted ahead of time. I mean, there was no vote on this. I should make, clear, make that clear. But I had a number of people call and say, hey, have you figured out anything yet? We think it ought to be Roth. <laughs> I'd say, well, thank you. <laughs> Let me go back and pray. And the closer we got, the more it was Rob. And, and then that morning, it was Rob. Hallelujah. And there was Rob sitting right there watching the whole thing happen. It was great. It was a great moment. Anything after this? Defining transition. We really do want to include this this morning before we're done. Transition is a process or period in which something undergoes a change and passes from one state, stage, form, or activity to another. That's transition. I want to make it really clear. I'm not retiring. I have to say this over and over again. I'm not retiring. I'm not going anywhere. This is a transition. We're going to move from one forum to another. We had a forum months ago that was three of us on staff here, and Pastor Mike, myself, and Ed, and that was how we ran things. But in the future, we'll transition to another forum. And in years, a couple of years down the road, you know, we're going to see Rob leading more and taking a lot of the daily stuff. And, and uh, anything that's tough, I'll give to him. Amen? Yeah. Rob's going to listen to this message. I want him to hear that before it comes. You get that, Rob? Write that down, buddy. Anything I don't want to do, you get. No. Um, that's not really the case. Maybe I can have a couple of guys come and help me hand these out. I want to send this home with you. Um, just, I think we've got enough for everybody. I may need to give you an extra pack. My apologies for some of the color issues on here. Our printer decided that it would uh, not want to print flesh tones very well so but this is a 
just has a little blurb in it, but I do want to point your attention to that we're planning now, because we know this is happening, that they'll be moving down here, I believe, sometime in August, and you might even become helpful in that. If so, I appreciate it. But here on the top inside page, I've said that on uh, August the 30th, which is the last Sunday in the month of August, before Rob probably officially starts with us, we want to have a welcome reception and a big potluck here at the church in the Sunday morning celebration. So you can go home and put that in your calendar to be here. We'll have a great time of it together. What date again? August 30th. It's in the top page, the top half of the inside page. Yep. Bring your best and we'll help you eat it. Something that has... Uh, that I would like to point out for Rob is that he and I have been kind of parallel in ministry for some time now. And I'm looking forward to the fact that we're going to intersect instead of him being there and me being here and us talking to each other, actually come together to work together. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Rob is a, a fairly equipped guy, you know, having spent three years on a mission field and uh, four years now as an assistant pastor uh, with another church. Um, he's thank you very much for your help um, he's been in a time of equipping he's actually been ministering if you add up the dates you saw up there he's been doing stuff for about 17 or 18 years he's been involved in ministry in some way or another so it's not like he's the new kid on the block the Bible says if you're going to bring somebody in don't let it be a novice he's definitely not a novice uh, he's very, very well equipped and uh, but like they said on Top Gun one of my old favorite flight jockey movies you're good you're the best but we can make you better and that's my plan for Rob is going to make him better um, help fine tune him some and um, so we'll be in the season in the process of transition for a little while and we'll grow together and so there you have it that's the grand announcement looking forward to a little Paul and Timothy time with Rob in person that's going to be good and uh, not leaving that out by any means I have, I have grandiose ideas for these poor fellows <laughs> and for the body I think Rob is going to be a tremendous asset for us and a blessing and Shannon as well I focused on Rob a lot because he's you know the staff guy and that but uh, I'm looking forward to Shannon coming and getting to be a mom and a wife they're homeschoolers, um, great family, and we're, you're going to love them. You really are. I command you. <laughs> Question, Tom. When we talked about beautiful things moving on and things happening, I, I got here a little late. I don't know whether it was known or not, but John and Donna Day celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary this weekend. That's right. 55. Thank you. Yeah, that's an endurance run. Yeah, that's no that's no hundred yard dash there. That's, a, that's the endurance thing. Cell um, so leaders, today we meet this afternoon three to five, and we'll have copies of these. We'll get them up for you so you can have them for your cell groups to hand out this week.